Can you hear me now? Yes. I, uh, it's funny, as I was preparing for today, about two days ago, I started to lose my voice. And uh, unbelievably, it's mostly back today. Uh, and I certainly appreciate uh, just the opportunity to be here. I do laugh as Brandon announced last week that I was going to be sharing the message. And then this morning, I kind of feel like uh, me preaching is seeing a Wolverine in California. You just don't see him very often. So, um, but what a privilege it's been to be asked to share this morning. Um, and, and even in opening, I think what I really wanted to express, first of all, was just my appreciation to Brandon, Alistair, Hoyt, and Larry, who bring us the word on a regular basis. Because it's, it's a tremendous privilege, but it's also a tremendous burden. Um, and uh, for those that have been here and done that, it's huge. Yes, Brandon's reminding me to excuse the church to go, uh, the children to go to children's church. So it's what happens when you get the new guy up here, does things in the wrong order. Um, so anyway, just the thankfulness of them bringing the word to us every Sunday so solidly, so scripturally, that it helps our church grow and walk in the way that it should walk. This morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew 6, 16 through, 14, 16 through 24, and we're going to start off by reading that. Matthew 6, 16 through 24. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the darkness with light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. He will, he, will, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Um, the, as we go into the first topic of um, Scripture of fasting, it's a tough topic. Um, it's not talked about a whole lot, um, and especially in our church where I would say our potlucks are almost a high holy day, um, where we love getting together and eating food. And, and that's a good thing. Jesus taught that get, gathering together and breaking bread is um, both a gift and a joy. That being said, fasting is mentioned over 70 times in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, more than many other topics, including baptism. So it's important. As we read these scriptures this morning, it's important to remember what we have been covering in the last number of weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, it is all about the heart. It begins with the first verse of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed be the poor in spirit. They knew they were broken. They knew they needed God with a broken heart, with a broken spirit. And throughout the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, it's not about behavior. It's about the heart. The many times Jesus said, you have heard it said, is followed up by the, but I tell you. Always going to the heart and the motivation of the action behind it. Jesus wants our heart. In the first um, two acts of righteousness, giving and praying, it's not about the outward show, 
but the inward desire to love and serve and submit to God. This continues in our scripture on fasting as we read Matthew 6, 16 through 18. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to the men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is in heaven. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In each of these sections on the acts of righteousness, on prayer, um, giving, and fasting, Jesus uses the same words. Whenever you give, pray, and fast, don't be like the hypocrites when they do those acts. And then he says, but when you give and pray and fast. Clarify, none of these are considered optional from Jesus' teaching. He doesn't say if you give, fast, and pray. He doesn't say if you want to. He doesn't say if it's convenient. He says when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And let's clarify what fasting is. Basic definition of fasting is, as a follower of Christ, is the voluntary abstention from food and or drink for a period of time for a spiritual purpose. It is not eating food. I hear people say they're going to fast from social media. They're going to fast from music. They're going to fast from TV, a number of other things. And these are, that's great because we live in a society that's a cesspool. And avoiding those activities, limiting them, avoiding them is beneficial. But again, fasting is the voluntary abstention from food for a period of time for a spiritual purpose. A number of people in our culture fast for other reasons. Physical benefit, great, possibly helpful, but fasting by itself without spiritual purpose has no spiritual benefit. There's nothing special about fasting in and of itself. It's what we attach it to that determines its value. One commentator I read had a brief summary on the acts of righteousness. He said, giving is to serve the others. Praying is to seek and talk to God. And fasting is to help with spiritual discipline. I think that's oversimplified and it's more complex than that. The fasting, in my experience, does require a significant amount of discipline and challenge. Fasting is hard and it reverses the normal pattern of our life. As one commentary put it, normally we tend to starve our spirit and to feed our flesh, literally. Fasting reverses that pattern. We feed our spirit and we starve our flesh. Again, literally. That really is the purpose of fasting, to direct our attention to our Lord and to concentrate on him and not on food and all that food entails. Shopping, buying, preparing it, eating it, cleaning up after it. I think we in the Western culture struggle with this even greater. We like our comfort. We rarely miss a meal. We have little persecution. And most of the time, if there's a hard thing to do, we have to choose to do a hard thing. Fasting and praying is a hard thing. Um, I think for all believers, but especially in the West, we need to take Paul's exhortation to heart in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 27 through, 24 through 27. Paul says, Do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, and they do it to get a crown that will last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. 
Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. This is not directly a focus on fasting, but the overall idea of discipline and controlling your body really ties in appropriately. We are to discipline our bodies. Some verses say, I buffet my body to make it my slave. A preacher I used to love and taught named Howard Hendricks said he did not say, I buffet my body. Big difference. I buffet my body to make it a slave. I don't buffet my body. What is the purpose of fasting? First of all, let's talk a little bit what fasting is not. Jesus, again, contrasts true and appropriate fasting with what the hypocrites were doing. The hypocrites and the Pharisees were putting on an outward show to be praised by men and to gain prestige. They assumed also that it was gaining them some favor with God. It did not, and they had received no benefit because, as Jesus said, they received their reward in full. Key thing here to consider is, Jesus points out their abuse of practice of fasting. But I would say, let's consider us. We should be convicted not by the abuse of the practice of fasting, but by the neglect of the practice of fasting. If we are not doing something that Jesus says that we should be doing, we're being disobedient. It's also important to point out that the Pharisees knew the requirement and the benefits from fasting, but that really wasn't their motivation. It was to gain power and prestige. They also thought they were impressing God. They thought it was part of their work of salvation. Jesus addresses this very nicely in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a contrast between the Pharisee and a tax collector, right? The Pharisee in pride said, thank you that I am not like other men, as evidenced by, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get to the poor. Um, and clarify, it's good to give, it's good to fast, but the fast Pharisee was doing it as part of his ticket to heaven, as well as to gain prestige. See me, see what I do, see how I give. Our salvation is never by works or by my sacrifice or discipline. It is truly by Jesus and Jesus alone, by his perfect life, death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, and his paying for my sins. I think we all know Ephesians 4, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not of yourselves, is it, a, it is a gift of God, not by works that no man may boast. What are some key reasons to fast? In the Old Testament, there was only one day required, and that was the Day of Atonement, but there was many times fasting occurred for a variety of reasons. Here's a partial list. To prepare for ministry, Matthew 4, 1 through 17 Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying, and we came out, chose his apostles, and began his ministry. 
Number two, to seek God's wisdom and direction. Acts 14, 23. The elders prayed and fast. The apostles prayed and fast for the elders of the churches and committed them to the Lord. To show grief and despair. Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4. Nehemiah fasted and prayed over the report of the disrepair and destruction of Jerusalem. To seek deliverance and protection. Esther 4, 13 through 17. Esther and her associates, Mordecai and his associates, prayed and fasted for three days before Esther went into the king to ask for deliverance from the Jews, for the Jews. Number five, to repent, confess, and seek God's mercy. Jonah 3, 6 through 10. Jonah had just begun to preach in Nineveh when the king of Nineveh called for a nationwide fast from the greatest to the least, including animals. No food or drink, and to pray earnestly to God. Number six, to worship God, Luke 2. Anna did not leave the temple, served God day and night with fasting and with praying. Number seven, to be in the presence of God, Exodus 34, 28. Moses was with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, not eating or drinking anything, and wrote the Ten Commandments and the words of the covenant. Lori and I began fasting over 15 years ago. It was at a youth conference, and we were challenged by a speaker named Howie, and we started it then. It was strongly reinforced by Brother Joseph, whose churches fasts and prays every Friday night. We do our fasting on Monday. I look forward to Monday, and I don't like Monday. Um, I actually kind of dread it. And I have to admit, Monday's a work day for me, so I am constantly looking for a reason to compromise on fasting. I have a medical executive committee. They provide food. It's going to be a long meeting. I'm sure God's okay with me eating at this meeting. I have a woman in labor. It's going to be a long night. I need extra energy. I probably need to eat something today. So I fail frequently. But I also have, um, I also have victory when I do stay on course and do fast. Um, when I have to cry out and say, God, help me with this. You know, there's times when you're fasting that you feel the hunger pains. You feel fatigued. You actually, I think Lori and I both experience, you kind of feel cold. At the end of the day, it's just like, man, I just can't get warm. Um, but God uses those as tremendous times to draw him close to himself. And clarify, we're under grace, not law. Um, it's okay to have the freedom to not fast on a day if God gives that to you. But I encourage you to fast, to not eat food for a specific purpose. Choose a day. How frequently? There is no prescription, Right? How frequently, that's your call. Weekly, monthly, how long? That varies a lot as well. Um, I typically have chosen to eat a light breakfast on Monday morning, and I don't eat again until the next day, so 24 hours. My wife, of course, eats on Sunday evening, and her next meal is midday Tuesday, so she's probably fasting for 30, 36 hours. So I suspect if you uh, compare my wife and I, it's better to go longer and harder because uh, it leads to more godliness. Um, my wife is amazing. Um, so again, clarify too, fasting should be hard. It should be difficult. It should make you go, Lord, help me. And Lord, you are worth it. Um, I'm going to complete this section of the, of the uh, sermon by reading a little bit of the true fasting again. And then we're going to introduce Steve Levine in just a minute. So to close this section on fasting, we are reading back to Isaiah 
58. Beginning at verse 3. We have fasted, they say, and you, didn't, you have not seen it. We have humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed. Yet on the day of fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only for a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? <laughs> to choose, uh, to lose the change of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, <clears throat> to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it? <clears throat> is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them. <clears throat> Sorry. And not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will appear quickly. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and say, here I am. Now I want to um, introduce Brother Steve Levine, who's going to come up and share his testimony. I love that brother. Hello? <laughs> I get the waterworks too, like Dave, so it's just, just a warning. Um, I told somebody this week they were brave for, for, for them to put me behind a mic after just a year here. Um, I'm not a preacher, definitely, but uh, I see some of my small group. I think they would all say that I'm long-winded. But uh, first I want to say, Brandon started a a sermon off a few weeks back. Brandon in here? There you are. First thing he said to us was, I love you. That's what he led with. And I thought, because he's been preaching some serious Serious sermons that we've all needed, right? Amen? Yes. Um, But it was in love. Uh, What I want to share today, um, there's nothing about shame or guilt or condemnation. Um, But I'd like you to, I purposely asked Alistair, to leave out an um, uh, announcement so he's not in trouble. Uh, but open your bulletin, if you would. And take that pen that's in front of you. 
I brought three from home that I've pilfered, if you need, if you need one. And turn to, look to the left of the, uh, the page. Almost drink Dave's water. Take your pen and upcoming events. Just do this, if you would. Circle it. Circle fasting, worship, and prayer. Put a big circle around it. Uh, Brandon and I differed a little bit. He said that um, more people come when you invite them personally, one-on-one, -on -one, than bulletins. Sometimes we, we toss our bulletins. But I'm um, hoping Brandon will be okay with me inviting all of you right now to tomorrow night, tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. It's July 3rd, not July 4th, and I know we've got family and friends in town, but uh, that's what I'm up here for, uh, and I'll explain kind of what has happened with me. Um, I have neglected prayer. For a lot of years, maybe you have too. On Sundays, Alistair counts everybody here. And I know he's told us there's close to over, over 200, I think, that have been showing up on Sundays. And there's, there's worship, there's fellowship, there's preaching and teaching and prayer and coffee and donuts, right? And this place is just warming and alive. And then once a month we're called to come and pray and fast and pray for one hour on a Monday night. Um, the first one I came to was, I think, back in April. And... Uh, I walked, I walked from Escaton over here and uh, got to the parking lot and there was, I think, two cars. So I was looking at my watch or my, my phone or whatever and got the wrong time. And I came in and Lori was up here with her arms raised and <sighs> worshiping. And Dave was kneeling or praying or getting some notes ready. And Joey was in the back. I came up and sat on the same bench or pew with them. And Joey led us with music that was just amazing. Amazing worship. Um, 
I won't forget that I've been to three of those now, April, May, June. And each time after I, I turned around that first time, I looked around and there were seven people here. That should, let that sink in. That should sting a little bit, body of Christ, church. And like I said, this is to me first, my neglect. Uh, so I can't point the finger at you or anyone else or the church. The church has failed, I think, in, in corporate prayer where we come together on one night once a month for this meeting for one hour. Uh, I think I'm getting warmed up here. Uh, I feel better about looking at your smiling faces. Um, what if we started coming to that one meeting, that prayer meeting for an hour once a month? Um, singles? Uh, what have you got going for one hour? Um, I really want to talk to the seniors here because I, I'm one, and I know there's plenty of seniors here, and I know we need our beauty sleep, but uh, six, in, six at night or seven, I think it's six, is, we shouldn't be in bed, right? We shouldn't be tucked in. Come. Come and pray for one hour. I told somebody, how awesome would it be if that parking lot was full like it is now tomorrow night at 7? Uh, I don't know if that's possible or not. Uh, it is possible it's with God, right? All things are possible. So I want to echo uh, what Dave said about great leadership. I remember first walking up here and meeting Brandon. Brandon and Alistair. I'm old enough to be their father, but I like to call them my little brothers. Uh, we are in such good hands with them and their wives who support them and the rest of the leadership, like Dave said. We have a great fellowship here, great group of people that are committed and are hardworking. And I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be a part of this church. Uh, so God's doing great things. Uh, let me ask, do we want God to save our world? Yes. Nod or smile. Interactive Sunday morning crowd. <laughs> yes, we do. Do we want God to save our nation? Yes. Do we need God to save our state? Yes. And do we want God to save Mount Shasta? The people that were all around. Uh, I would just say, come and join us. Um, you will be blessed if you come. And you will also be a blessing just by someone seeing you here that you chose to come. 
and to pray. Um, I didn't want to say this, but I will. I was going to say you don't, you don't even have to pray out loud. You have to pray. But we're a quiet group. I know I speaking with Jeanette, Brandon's mom, and I said, wouldn't this be great if this was a Baptist church that everyone said, amen, hallelujah. And she said, do it. <laughs> and we don't, amen, thank you. Thank you, Brother Mike. <laughs> uh, we don't need to. We don't have to pray out loud. But, you know, if you come and you're here, I guarantee you, these two right here will lead us in all the topics that we need to, to pray. So, um, Redding, thank you, Mike. Uh, let's obey. Let's honor God. Uh, and I just saw Chad. You know there's a Monday night prayer meeting. I know I've gone way long. I'm sorry. Um, um, there's a Monday meeting at, at uh, 5.30 or 6, uh, and this wouldn't have happened a year ago. I was down in Reading this past Monday with my daughter and grandson, and I raced to get back here for that prayer meeting in the cry room. There's five, five or six of us. I raced to get back here. I never would have done that even a year ago. And I got home, was unloading, and looked at the schedule, and it said, I thought it was at 6, it was at 5.30. So I really had to hustle to get here. Um, what a blessing that is, to come together with just a, even a few people. So um, please come, and uh, let's remember, uh, Jesus said this is a, his Father's house. And it's a house of prayer. So Amen. let's pray. God bless you. Certainly tempted to close right there. Thank you, Steve. That was great. Um, so we're turning next um, to the issue of treasure. And so we're going to be reading now in Matthew 6, 19 through 24 as we continue on. Matthew 6, 19 through 24, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. He will either, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The opening of this scripture is fairly clear. We are all going to have treasure, and we're going to treasure something. And how do we define treasure? In our secular world, Treasure is defined as precious metals, gems, valuable materials, or objects. Typically, they can be touched, weighed, stored, worn, and they can be put in a vault, protected, buried, and they're typically physical. We all know, of course, there's other treasures as well. Family, prestige, career, reputation, looks. 
when we make something a treasure, how does that affect the way we respond to it? We recognize the need that we need to protect it, guard it, keep it safe, loss, um, protect it from harm. We put it in a bank, lock it in a safe, bury it, keep it in a secret place and no one else can find it. It also tends to make us fear the loss of it. The reason for that is these treasures are temporary. They can be destroyed, they can be lost, they can be stolen. I typically eat my lunch in the doctor's lounge. It's kind of a place I can relax, eat, maybe catch up on the news. And over the years, I've watched as a number of uh, physicians will come in, and the first thing they do is turn on the financial market. They're watching the stock market. I watch them celebrate as the market goes up and their treasure increases, and I watch them curse when it goes down. I watch them make rapid phone calls and try to make different decisions. They're guarding their treasure. And this, in this case, it's financial wealth. It can be other things. Again, it can be relationships, family, travel, job. We can have many things that are treasure. But again, back to what we said earlier, the problem with these things is they cause stress, worry, and fear. Moth and rust can destroy. Thieves can break in and steal. Relationships can be broken or lost. Jobs and careers can be taken away. Families can break up. Clarify, by the way, it's not having or owning material things that's the problem. It's when we make the thing a treasure or an idol. When stuff is your treasure, how much is enough? We all know the answer, right? A little bit more. How much stress and anxiety do we generate trying to hold on to things, trying to keep a hold and grow our treasure? Jesus answers all this with a simple and straightforward answer. Store up for your treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy nor can thieves break in and steal. Your deposits in heaven are secure, cannot be stolen, do not need to be protected, and they are eternal. What does treasure in heaven look like? Let's just talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Treasure is described as suffering persecution for Jesus in Matthew 5.22 letting your light shine before men to give praise to your Father in heaven in Matthew 5.16, reconciling with your brother and sister in Matthew 5.24, honoring marriage in Matthew 5.31 and 32, letting your yes be yes and your no, no, and following through on commitments in Matthew 5.37, turning your cheek and going the extra mile in Matthew 5.39-42, Loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you in Matthew 5, 44. Doing acts of righteousness, giving, praying, and fasting that we're talking about in Matthew 6. Not being anxious in a crazy world, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Not judging, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, Matthew 7, 12. Recognizing false prophets, Matthew 7, 15 and 16. Producing good fruit, Matthew 7, 17 through 18. Being obedient to Jesus' teachings, Matthew 7, 24 and 25. This is only a partial list, and I highly recommend spending a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives only two choices. Your treasure is going to be of the earth, or your treasure is going to be in heaven. You cannot choose both. A great example of this is in Luke 18, verses 18 through 23 a story that I think will be familiar to many of you. It's the story of the rich ruler. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. 
Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became sad because he was a man of great wealth. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. The young man opened with a great question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Isn't that something we should all be asking? Jesus begins by saying, uh, listing some of the Ten Commandments. The young man said, I've done all these things. But the young man still knew that it wasn't enough. There was something that was missing. Jesus went to the center of the issue, the heart of the matter. He identifies the young man's treasure. It is earthly, measurable, needs protecting, but it can probably meet all of his physical needs and his pleasurable needs as well. Jesus understands the man's greatest barrier to believing in in Jesus is his stuff. Jesus responds by saying, sell all you have and give it to the poor. That's tough. How would you respond? How would I respond? He probably had worked hard, managed well, probably had saved, and we read the scriptures say, and we say, of course, it's worth it. But would we? How would we respond? Jesus' promises are huge and major on this issue. If he gives away all of his stuff to the poor and gets treasure in heaven, Jesus says he will have treasure in heaven. Not might, but he will have treasure in heaven. He is also free from the need to manage, control, and protect all of his stuff. He would be free. What's his treasure? Giving to the poor, doing unto others what you'd have them do unto you, giving to those who ask, performing acts of righteousness, producing good fruit. Jesus clearly saw that this man was controlled by his earthly treasure, and the only solution was giving it away of his own volition. Not only would he gain freedom from stress and get treasure in heaven, he would then be free to follow Jesus. Jesus gave him a clear choice between earthly treasure and treasure in heaven, and the young man made his decision, earthly treasure. And Jesus gives the strong warning about easier for a camel to get the eye of a needle than a, man, than a rich man get into heaven. Why? Why is that so hard? There's many reasons, but ultimately it's in who or what we placed our trust and our hope in. Do we get it from our security from our 401k, from our savings account or bank account? from our pension, from our social security, or is it in God? With earthly wealth, we can, um, we can tend to meet our own needs and take care of our own issues. Jesus asked the young man to do a hard thing, and quite frankly, from the world's standpoint, an unwise thing. In return, however, he would get an eternal life-saving program. His earthly possessions owned him and his time and his thoughts, And Jesus was offering him freedom. The key point, again, is not about the stuff, but what we have chosen as a treasure. And he had chosen his wealth. If you look at Matthew, I'm sorry, if you look at Luke 19, 1 through 10, we have the example of Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man there named Zacchaeus. He was chief tax collector and was wealthy. 
He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and, I have cheated, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus was a rich man just like the other man was. He probably had spent most of his life pursuing wealth, and I'm guessing his wealth was his treasure. But when Jesus came, he was curious. He wanted to see who Jesus was and what he was about. He was even willing to climb a tree to get in front of where Jesus was. And what was his response to Jesus? It was welcoming, filled with joy. And what was his response to being called a sinner? He wasn't defensive. He didn't blame anyone else. He didn't give any excuses. He was generous. He was caring. He was filled with freedom from his stuff. He responds immediately by giving away half of all his possessions. By the way, it's no longer his treasure. It's stuff. He gives away half of his possessions and pays back four to one anyone that he cheated. What treasure did he gain? According to Jesus, of course, salvation, also generosity and giving, helping the poor, being poor in spirit. Zacchaeus was using his earthly stuff, not his treasure, as a means to advance God's kingdom. He chose heavenly treasure over earthly treasure. Very much a contrast to the, to the other ruler. Both had much earthly, earthly wealth. One was controlled by it. The other was using it to bless others. Going on into Matthew 6.21, it says, where your treasure, there your heart is. That summarizes this very well. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. And you can only choose one or the other. Paul demonstrates this strongly in his life in, Matthew's, in, in Philippians 3, 4 through 8. Philippians 3, 4 through 8. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider, everyth I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through Christ, the righteousness that comes through faith. Paul clearly exchanged his earthly treasure of everything he'd worked with his whole life, knowing that it was garbage compared to the greatness of, going, of knowing Christ. In the next part, we go to Romans, talking about the light in the dark. Matthew 6, 22 through 23. says, The eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The clear contrast in these verses between light and dark, good and evil. 
And that's obviously a common theme in the Bible. It should make sense for us to pursue light and goodness. What's our challenge? Why do we have such a hard time pursuing light and goodness? John chapter three sums it up incredibly well. Verses 19 through 21. He said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Again, that's our challenge, and it goes with what we choose. Again, are we going to choose worldly success or desires or godly success? In the scriptures, the eye and the heart are frequently interchangeably used. This is really referring to whether our heart and our eyes are good or whether our heart and eyes are bad. If we choose wisely and choose Jesus, then our hearts or eyes will be filled with health and full of light. Vice versa, it's dark. Finally, in the last section, when we read Matthew 6, 24, it says, no one can serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The term serve two masters suggests that he is talking about the position of a slave. We are a slave, and we will submit to our master. We must. A slave can only serve one master. Our eyes and our heart will be fixed on heaven or will be fixed on earth, and it cannot be on both. We will serve heaven or we will serve earth. Again, not both. The mark of a disciple is that he serves the right master, which is Jesus. Everyone will serve a master. We cannot be independent. It will be someone or something. And I love the way that Joshua stated in Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers serve beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in the lands who you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So bottom line is, we need to choose every day whom we will serve. Are we going to serve God? Are we going to serve money? By the way, the issue is not how much you have. You can have a little and be focused on it, and it can be your treasure, and you can have a lot and not be controlled by it. But wealth is a huge temptation, and we all in the West need to be careful of that. And in the end, if you live for God, you cannot live for money, and if you live for wealth, you cannot live for God. Choose well, choose wisely, and let's choose to follow Jesus. And in closing, I'm going to read 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, where Paul sums this up very nicely. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will treasure up for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, and we do just thank you for your, your presence in our life, Lord. 
we thank you that you are with us and that you call us to do hard things. God, and yet you give us the strength to do them. You give us the Holy Spirit within us. You give us your word. You give us believers around us that are here to encourage and, and walk with us. God, we just pray that our life would be different. We pray we would love and honor you, pursue you. God, that we would fast, we would pray, we would choose to do hard things, Lord. We would be not controlled by our treasure, but would give it to you, Lord, and let you be the controller. God, we just do pray. God, as Steve prayed earlier, and I talked earlier, Lord, we're responsible for the world, for our country, for our community, and for our neighbor, Lord. Allow us to take that seriously. In Jesus' name, amen.